passage of scripture from Matthew in a few seconds, and, and I want you to understand that in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is very much portrayed, described, presented to us as one who's coming into the world to establish a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. In so doing, he's already been in his ministry for some time. His disciples have been following him. They've seen him do a number of healing miracles. They've seen him do things like feed 5,000 people with a little bit of loaves and fishes. They've heard him give some amazing teaching. They've seen him accept people who others found unacceptable. In other words, they had seen an awful lot in the time they had been with Jesus already. And now in this moment of Jesus' ministry and relationship with the disciples, they're gathered together, sort of a, it seems like it's almost a break time, sort of just sitting down, relaxing with each other. Jesus takes the opportunity to allow the disciples to sort of think about what's been going on. And then he engages with them in this very critical conversation that has had lasting meaning for Christians throughout all generations, including our own. So I invite you to listen, eavesdrop, if you will, to this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. And I'm going to invite you to join with me now in a spirit of preparatory prayer. What is it that we have come to seek after God that falls in line with what is it that you want to give to us? Among so many things that we could list, there is the one thing that overrides them all, that becomes the answer to virtually every question and the support to us in the face of all the unanswerable questions. It is Jesus. 
So help us to focus on who he was and who he is and who we can become because of him. Give us Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Last week, we spent time talking about how to love as Jesus loved. Of course, really, none of that matters if we really don't have an understanding of why it matters whatever Jesus had to say or do. And there are a lot of people who can counsel you on how to love and how to live your life, and there are probably a few people in your life who are more than willing to give you suggestions about how you should be living yours, I can imagine. I know there are a few people in my life more than willing to share with me how I ought to be living mine. Thank you, God, for each and every one. Why does it matter what Jesus had to say, what Jesus did? The answer to that question, of course, you already know what I'm going to say. Well, because Jesus is Lord. You know that I'm going to go there, so let's not pretend I'm holding that back as a big shock to you a little bit later on. But to have said that is not necessarily to know what we all mean by that. The sermon title, Which Jesus is not asking whether or not Jesus matters, but rather, can we come to an understanding of who this Jesus really is? Because the fact is, all of us come to Jesus with a peculiarity that is unique to our backgrounds and personality and uh, orientation with how we see the world and take on authority and all of the above. I heard a uh, uh, late-night talk show host this past week, uh, thank you for giving me this sermon uh, moment, um, said, you know, he was thinking this past week about the presidential elections. And without becoming political, he was talking about the fact that both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump uh, profess Christian faith as their faith. Oh, Hillary actually is a United Methodist, by the way. And, uh, and he was wondering about that, and he said, I wonder, I wonder if Hillary and Donald Trump see Jesus the same way. Well, without getting political, my guess is probably not. But my guess also is you could suggest that each and every one of us has a unique way in which we come to see Jesus. For example, if I were to give you 15 seconds, I mean literally 15 seconds right now, to think of how you describe Jesus Christ... What would you list in your mind in 15 seconds? How would I describe Jesus Christ? On your mark, get set, go. Stop. What words did you use? Forgiveness, Savior, loving. Okay, choir, stop now. Okay. <laughs> Once they get going, you know how it can be. What did you say? Foundation. Caring. Scream it right out loud. Teacher. Great. I'm hearing them, but I'm not going to repeat them all back. Counselor. Fact is, we all have different words. The minute you think of Jesus and you don't have a little bit of time to describe him, we don't all begin at exactly the same place, right? 
You know, one of the great theological places you can find this is in a movie called Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, (laughs) which is a great piece of theological writing if there ever has been one. That's sarcasm, for those of you who don't know. And I'm not necessarily saying that you need to go see the movie, but there's a scene in it where Ricky Bobby and his family are sitting down at table, and Ricky Bobby begins to pray, and he begins to pray to the little baby Jesus. And he launches into a prayer about little baby Jesus. In the middle of the prayer, um, a conversation ensues, breaks out about how Jesus wasn't just a little baby. He was a man. And Ricky Bobby says, I like little baby Jesus. When you're praying, you can pray to little baby Jesus or teenager Jesus or grown-up Jesus. And then they go on with some other things we're not going to get into in the sermon. But I like little baby Jesus. And he goes right back into it. And then now gets specific in prayer. Sweet little eight-pound, seven-ounce baby Jesus. I mean, Ricky Bobby's locked into baby Jesus. That's how he sees Jesus. And that's how he's going to understand who Jesus is. He's not alone about having a particular way in which we see Jesus. In my office, and I should have brought it in, and I'll have it for the 11 o'clock service. So you can watch the tape and see it later. I have in my office a statue about this big. Well, it's not a statue. It's actually an action figure of Jesus. It moves in everything. It was given to me by a good friend of mine, and I happen to know that he loves action movies. Goes to see all the Marvel movies and, you know, all those high-energy action movies. He loves action. And so I was given a few years ago this action-figured Jesus. And uh, you can understand how an action-figured Jesus might take you down a different path than a sweet little baby Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? We all have particular ways of describing who Jesus is. Well, in the context of the Scripture today, Jesus is asking the question, who do you say that I am? He's asking it to those who have been observing his life closely. They've been living with him. They've seen exactly what he's been about. And after having walked with him for a while, it comes to the moment when Jesus wants to say, okay, now after you've seen all this, who do you now say that I am? In the context of the things that you have seen, who do you say that I am? And I find it interesting, the disciples immediately begin to launch into what they heard in Sunday school. Oh, you're John the Baptist, or you're one of the prophets. I mean, they do what oftentimes we do in the Christian church. We launch into the descriptions of Jesus that we've been taught by the church to say. And Jesus is not having that. Jesus turns to Peter and says, okay, I know you listened back in third grade Sunday school. I'm asking you, who do you say that I am? Now we're not sure, I'm not sure at least, If Peter then made a declaration out of his own firm conviction or his best guess out of the possible choices. But what he said mattered because he said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Lord. In so naming Jesus, he describes Jesus in a particular way. I'm going to talk about that in a second. That's also why I think Jesus says to Peter, I don't want you to say a word about this to anyone. Because guess what? 
I now know that you have described me in a manner that you do not fully understand. You see, this is told to Peter before Jesus has been killed on the cross. This has been told to Peter before resurrection has occurred. So as a result, Jesus' Jesus' understanding is Lord in Peter's mind is limited. It has nothing to do about a Christ who's willing to go to the cross for our sins. It has nothing to do with a Jesus who has the power to resurrect from the dead. So Jesus says, hey, don't go on saying too much yet. Because there's a few more things you have to know before you have a real testimony about who I am. Jesus wants to know from Peter, who do you say that I am at this moment in time? Realizing that there'll be things about Jesus that Peter will come to know later that will affect his declaration. And yet, it was so important for Peter to have a beginning place to say, how do you talk about me? What do you think about me right now? That matters. So who do you say Christ is right now? Matters. The word you use to describe him matters. With the realization that there's a great likelihood that the longer you walk with Christ, the closer you live with his walk, and the more you begin to discover of what he's doing in your life and the world, your declarations about Jesus will grow deeper and change. But right now it matters. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Well, the early church wanted to help us with that, and so they gave us language that we could use to talk about Jesus. They didn't want you just going off on your own, thinking, well, what do you think Jesus is? They gave us a creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Now turn in your hymnals to page 881. And the Apostles' Creed in 881, and then we made it more um, inclusive in the number 882, so you can be looking at either one, it doesn't matter to me. You'll find that there are three paragraphs. The first paragraph talks about God. It is the second paragraph that focuses in on who Jesus is. The third paragraph talks about the Holy Spirit and the church that comes out of the movement of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to focus on that second paragraph. I believe in Jesus Christ, who is what? God's only Son and is our Lord. I want you to know that Jesus is a peculiar, unique individual. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, you and I can get into lengthy debate as to whether we believe Jesus was born of a virgin or of a young girl. You can even get into the debate about whether or not he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and what that means. But what you have to understand when the church gives us that understanding, they aren't really worried about locking into that debate alone. They want you to know he's not just another really outstanding quality guy. Jesus is a unique entity in the world. More about that later. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, which is a reference point to know, okay, is it that Jesus of the first century or this Jesus? No, it's the one under Pontius Pilate. Remember that story? That's the one we're talking about. He was crucified. That is to say, Jesus was willing to be murdered, to go on the cross, to endure the horror of humanity. He was willing to enter into death He did die, really die, and then broke out of death into resurrection. He ascended into heaven. And so Jesus is alive 
sitting at the right hand of God and remaining in relationship with us and all of eternity to come and judge, have reign over, that is the suggestion, in a, more way, in a way which you understand it more effectively, for all time. This is who Jesus is. This is the words of the early church written down so that for centuries you would have a beginning point to know how to talk about Jesus. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because if Jesus were just a historical figure of some significance, our understanding of who he was would change throughout time. That happens to us when we look back at the great people of the past. In fact, many of the great people that we think of of the past weren't thought of as great people in that time. Abraham Lincoln, whom we revere as one of the great presidents, was actually despised by not only Southern sympathizers, but many Northerners who didn't like the way he was trying to bridge a relationship between the North and the South. And I could go with every other historical figure that you now admire and realize there were people in their day who were strong detractors about that person. Martin Luther King Jr., whom we commonly accept now as one of the great leaders of our country within the last century. If you were around in the 50s, you know he wasn't universally loved. The church is trying to say, Jesus is not relative. Jesus doesn't change throughout time so that future generations can engage him in a whole brand new way. Jesus is who Jesus is. It's so important that you understand that, that the fact is the Apostles' Creed is not the first language we get about who Jesus really is. It actually starts, the Apostles' Creed was written around 390 A.D., almost 400 years after Jesus. But in 55 A.D., Galatians was written. It's the first recorded scripture. And in Galatians, it begins right at the beginning. The Apostle Paul is describing who, in fact, this Jesus is. Describes him as the one who is saved, the one who has risen from the dead, and the one who died for our sins. Paul is trying to get you to understand from the get-go. As you engage with Jesus, you're going to have different kinds of experiences and you're going to begin to layer on different depths of understanding the faith on who he is. But Jesus has a beginning point and here's what they are. And so for the next few minutes, I want to walk you through four. And the first is that Jesus is Lord. One of the first things that Christians are called to think about when asked the question is, who is Jesus? The answer is, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the one who is our defining story and truth. Everything that I am, everything that I do, everything that I believe defaults back to this one truth. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Jesus is my defining story. You want to know what I believe? You need to go back and see Jesus. That's the first and foremost thing that I believe in. Jesus is Lord of my life, which is to say that in the prioritization of everything I do, there's nothing that I value unless it first goes under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What I'm about, 
how I will use my time and my money and my talent, how I will love others, is all about understanding I do it so that Jesus Christ is affirmed and loved and served as my Lord. It's the first thing we say about him. It's putting Jesus over all in my life. A few years ago, we talked about what would Jesus do. And we used that as a way of saying that's what Christians should do. And it has some value to it. I'm not knocking what would Jesus do as a question. But Lordship of Jesus Christ is more about what will I be. It's not about just the actions that I do. It's about what I will be. Now, how how does that matter? It matters because all of life changes if Jesus is your Lord. Right now, we have our high school class in worship with us. You don't see them because they're in another part of the church, and they're actually watching us from, from the broadcast. And, and they're also doing some other things that I've invited them to do to take this message to their own heart today. And so what I'm going to do is tell you what they're watching in a few minutes. Monty Williams is an assistant basketball coach for the Oakland Thunder. I mean, I mean Oklahoma Thunder, which is a national basketball team, okay, NBA team. And he was a great player coming out of Notre Dame, and he had a heart issue that, that really threatened to shorten his career. He'd gone through stuff. But last week, his wife Ingrid, 44 years of age, was killed in a, in a head-on collision where another car crossed the line, hit her, and she was killed. Monty and Ingrid had five children. I can tell you that I really knew very little about Monty Williams. I had heard about him because I love sports, but I really didn't know much about him. But this last week at his wife's funeral, he stood up, and I'm going to tell you if you get a chance today, the kids right now are flipping up their phones and looking at it on their phones or looking on, a, on the laptop, but go to YouTube. And type in, you want to write this down? Go ahead. It'll be worth the seven minutes it's going to take you to do this. Monty Williams' eulogy at his wife's funeral. Just type in that in the question search box for YouTube and it'll come up. He stood up in front of those people, and I want you to understand where he was living at that moment. His wife had been killed tragically a few days before. He now has five children to raise. It becomes clear the minute you begin to watch this film, this, this, edit, this uh, uh, clip. Monty Williams loved his wife. Monty Williams loved the Lord. And Ingrid, his wife, loved the Lord. And I want you to understand how he talked about getting through these days matters. He talked about the fact that Right now, you have to remember the most important thing. That this is a really tough life, and right now his family is going through a really tough time. The most important thing is that God loves us. The most important thing is that in this moment, that love is not taken away. The most important thing that he said we need to remember, he talked to the crowd in front of them, is that we need to be praying for the family who also lost a loved one whose car came into the lane and killed my wife. Because Jesus would want us to forgive and to care for and love that family who's grieving too. He said, 
it's going to be really hard without my wife because I love my wife. He said, I used to leave work. I know the coach used to wonder, why do I want to leave practice so early? It wasn't just I want to, get up, I want to go home and be with my wife. We didn't do anything. And there was a joke that they must have done something. They got five kids. But they, he loved just sitting at home with his wife. He said, we do nothing. We just sit around, but I just love sitting around with my wife. He said, people got tired of me talking about my wife. I talk about my wife all the time. He said, but who else am I going to talk about? He said, I'm going to miss sitting with my wife. He said, but we haven't lost her. He said, when you lose something, you can't find it. You don't know where it is. He said, but we haven't lost my wife. I know where my wife is. I know where my wife is. And I will continue to love her until the day we're together again. I want you to pay attention to that video clip, and I want you to listen to him And I want you to listen to the conviction of his heart and the courage that he has in the midst of the brokenness of that heart. And I want you to understand that if you say Jesus Christ is Lord on a given day, you may say, well, it's not that big a deal. I'm telling you, it is the only thing that matters. Because it will change everything about how you live a day. And it will allow you in the moments of those brokenness to realize God is in charge. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. A Christ is someone who's anointed. When, when monarchs take the throne in virtually every culture, there's some ritual that happens to indicate that this person is set apart for a particular task. So the anointing occurs. A lot of times I use oil. But this person was set aside for a particular task. They are the Christ, they are the King, they are the Messiah. Jesus Christ is set aside for the unique particular task of becoming God in the world. Jesus Christ is the one who comes into the world as God to become human. I still get this question a lot. Let me be very clear that you hear this from me. Jesus Christ was not just the epitome of the best of humanity. Jesus Christ was God and fully human. And you can say, Rick, that makes no sense whatsoever. And I can tell you two things. That equation is always an equation that needs to be understood by faith. But it's also true that unless you understand Jesus Christ as both God and human, you lose so much of the power that Jesus came to give to you to live your life each day. Jesus Christ was set apart to be the one to show us how to live the best of what our human life was called to be. God showing us how to do it. Not humanity rising up to the best that he could be and then being rewarded for it. Jesus Christ was sent into the world God made flesh. Incarnation, we call it. Incarnate. God becomes flesh. So when we look to Jesus, Jesus is not just a great moral teacher. Jesus is God who is showing us what God always intended us to know. Jesus as Savior. 
The word Jesus means God saves. That's the literal translation of Jesus. God saves. Jesus is our understanding from the very beginning of the Christian affirmation. The God we worship is one who has intentional desire to save us from all that would thwart us from being in full relationship with God. And the only way that was possible was for God to finally come into the world to demonstrate to us, in case you have any question of how deeply I love you and care about you, I'm going to send my son that he can save you. We can talk about what that means, and we'll be talking about that tomorrow night in class, but I want you to understand this. Why it matters to call Jesus our Savior is to understand that in Jesus there is a power that matters in the times of our life when we have come to the end of our rope, when we've come to a place of utter failure, we've come to a place where we need to be forgiven and reconciled. And I can tell you this, both as a pastor and as a man. God has placed me too many times in my life and too many times in the lives with other people where the best moral teaching I could give them would not at all begin to meet the brokenness of their heart or their life. Where absolutely the worst horrific moments, and I could begin to list off countless ones, times that I've been with families who have lost children, people who have lost their marriages and their job because of addiction, and you can go on and on the list, and you know them too, don't you? They're not looking for a moral teacher to figure out how to have a better day tomorrow. They need a Savior. Jesus Christ as Savior means that when I pray for you in the name of Jesus, I'm not hoping you have a better day tomorrow. I'm praying that you'll be able to catch the grace that God is pouring upon you and that it will stir within you. And that even in the midst of the depth of the worst moments of humanity and the depths of our grief, God's love can still touch us and change us. You realize the world is not looking for someone else who's got a better idea on how to live? The world needs a Savior. And Jesus resurrected. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call it Easter. The truth is, that's a terrible thing to say. Because if we as Christians get typecast by thinking, well, we're going to celebrate the resurrected Jesus on Easter Sunday, it suggests we're not tap dancing every day of our life that Jesus is resurrected. For us, every day is Easter. Every worship is Easter. Every moment we wake up and discover that we're taking breath, it's Easter. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Jesus died Jesus was buried, and Jesus was resurrected. And I know there's a lot of debate that goes on as to whether or not that's just a wonderful way to talk about how Jesus has power in this world, and whether or not he physically resurrected. Let me put it to you as bluntly as I can. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then everything else we're doing is ridiculous and false. 
And if Jesus was resurrected, then everything we're doing has a chance to save the world. It's as simple as that. There are those who want to suggest that it's old wives' tale and it's mythology and it doesn't make sense in a contemporary world. I want to tell you, in the contemporary world of the first century, it didn't make sense either. Every generation has had people say, well, that makes no sense whatsoever. And yet the power of the resurrection continues to exist today. And it exists not because I can argue you into it, but because I've felt the power of resurrection within me. I've watched resurrection occur in front of me as the power of the resurrected Lord changed lives that, quite frankly, were already past the point of no return. And that's the witness of our faith. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the one anointed by God to come into the world to give us a chance to know how to live our life. Jesus is the Savior who stands as that presence within my life and in your life for all the places where I and the world are broken. There is hope. Jesus is resurrected. I'm not talking about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about the Lord who's standing so close to me right now that his breath is chasing after my breath. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And I want to suggest to you today that the answer to the question of who is Jesus matters. Now, I could go on and on and on because you know I'm really good at doing that. And on and on and on and on. Truth is, I will never argue you into an understanding of Jesus Christ as your Lord, or Jesus Christ as your Christ, or Jesus Christ as your Savior, or Jesus Christ as resurrected. Because no one got me to believe that because they argued me into it. I came to know it was true because I lived his story until it became my story. I quit listening to second-hand accounts about Jesus, and I began to focus on Jesus. And I can tell you the fact that I named Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today, not because it's a really good idea, but because I have known him personally, and I don't know all about him. And my Christology continues to grow and change as I continue to mature in my faith, but Jesus is real. I've often found him to be real within the body of Christ. That's oftentimes where I've been nurtured and fed. So let me ask you this question. Who are you teaching Jesus to? I'm serious. Who are you teaching Jesus to right now? I don't know enough. That's nonsense. You know enough to be here this morning, so you know enough to even begin asking the right questions. Who are you teaching Jesus to? Who are you praying for that they will come to know Jesus in a deeper and more meaningful way. Name them. Name them to the Lord. Name them to Jesus Christ. Pray for them. Ask them. Relate to them. Befriend them. Welcome them into a community of faith where they will get to know Jesus on their own terms and in the universal truth of who Jesus is. The next service, Olivia is going to be here, and we're going to baptize her. Olivia... Won't have a clue what's going on. She's going to think it's bath time. And I don't know how she's going to react to it, and it's okay. But either we believe that the water that we're pouring on Olivia's head 
is a life-changing force of the power of the Holy Spirit that comes from the risen Lord that gives her the grace within her to live her life as a declaimed, anointed child of Jesus Christ to become a full disciple in his name, or we're just doing some sweet thing that won't matter two weeks from now. I'm a baptized child of God. I'm washed in the waters of grace, and I'm claimed by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that's my testimony and witness. What's yours? In 15 seconds, what's yours? More to the point, who knows it? Please don't let other people consider who Jesus is without you weighing in for them and with them. Because I'm going to dare say most of you wouldn't be here today unless somebody shared their faith with you. I believe the faith Jesus intended was for us to live our lives in a way in which his life was unmistakably real. May it be so, to the glory of God.